It is such a mammoth of a, of a project. It is also sacred, hallowed ground. The color purple is, a, is, is healing for many. It's not work that you just step into. My concern was that there was nothing to truly add. So I went back to Alice Walker's book, and thankfully I found what I was looking for. First page, first line, Dear God. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a popular tale takes on a new melodic spin in director Blitz Bazawule's musical drama, The Color Purple. The film spans decades to tell the story of Celie, a woman who faces many hardships throughout her life. But ultimately, she finds strength and hope in the unbreakable bonds of sisterhood on her journey to independence. In addition to The Color Purple, Bazawule's other directorial credits include the feature film The Burial of Kojo, the movie for television Black is King, and episodes of the series Cherish the Day. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Bazawule spoke with director Gina Prince-Bythewood about filming The Color Purple. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hi, Blitz. Um, foremost, thank you guys for coming out on a on a Saturday. Um, I'm actually I'm very excited and honored to chop it up with you. This I had the opportunity to see your film a couple weeks ago, and what's foremost is a beautiful film. But what I love about it is it's one of those films that transcends and becomes an experience. Like it, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So just rocks, rocks the soul. So very, very excited to talk to you about it. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So I, I do want to start with how I always start, which is with the why. Why this film? Wow. Um, first, thank you all for being here. It's such an honor, pleasure to be here. And thank you, Gina. Yeah, let me give you your flowers first. Um, such a fan and just really thankful that you took time to do this with me. So thank you. Um, the why for me begins way before this film, you know, I grew up in Ghana, you know, and, um, I grew up around a family of storytellers. You know, my grandmother was a phenomenal storyteller. She, I grew up in a neighborhood that, you know, didn't have electricity at the time. And so around 6 PM, it was like, if your chores were done, it was like, Grandma was going to tell stories, and that's kind of what we did. And um, between her and my mom, they, it was just the stories will just oscillate and go back and forth. And I learned that stories could be told in very different ways. I learned that stories were not always linear; sometimes it was cyclical. Characters will come and go. Um, they will appear as a bird one time. They'll appear as a human form the next time. Sometimes inanimate objects, a table, a chair. So like my understanding of story is very expansive. And then, you know, I, I've always wanted to participate in this medium somehow, sto storytelling and music was a way I got into um, telling stories in, 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 a, in an expansive macro way. 
but film was always at the back of my mind because um, I also grew up as a visual artist. I drew and painted a lot as a kid. And I always felt that there was this possibility with this medium, right, to really contribute in a meaningful way. Um, so when I got the chance to make my first feature film, The Burial of Kojo, it was really about trying to see how far I could push the medium using what I knew as storytelling, you know? Um, and then, you know, that thankfully happened and then Beyonce came calling to do Black is King, which thank God for that because that also showed me I could push it even further. And so we arrive here, The Color Purple, and it's been the same why, um, to, to really try to push this medium in a, in a, in a, in a way that I, I, I think um, it needs. Well, you said, as you just said, this is the color purple. But she said a lot of the work was figuring out how we were going to make sure we weren't creating a carbon copy of the original that existed, but give ours our own voice. Yes. When you talk about pushing the medium and pushing storytelling, how did that influence that? Yes, I mean, so, I mean, when I was first approached to do this film, I was deeply nervous, which I'm sure you, you all could probably understand and appreciate. It is such a mammoth of a, of a project. It is also sacred, hollowed ground. The color purple is, a, is, is healing for many. It's not work that you just step into um, without deep thought. My concern was that there was nothing to truly add. That was my concern. So, you know, of course, I read Marcus's brilliant script, but I still just didn't feel like I, I could see it yet. So I went back to Alice Walker's book, and thankfully I found what I was looking for, first page, first line, Dear God. You know, and I was like, oh, wow, okay. So anybody who writes letters to God must have an imagination, and certainly a sprawling imagination. And that's kind of what became like the North Star for us. We were like, all right, we're going to expand Celie's imagination. We're going to give her, you know, this ability to think and imagine her way out of her abuse and trauma. And I really feel like a lot of times we miscategorize people who have dealt with abuse and trauma as docile or passive or waiting to be saved. I really believe nothing could be further from the truth. People who have dealt with abuse and trauma are constantly trying to work their way out of this abuse and trauma. We just don't have access to their headspace. So I figured if we could give, if we can give the audience a glimpse into Celie's headspace, We'll see her actively be, you know, working her way out, figure out how to love, who to love, figure out how to escape abuse, figure out how to forgive. I mean, these are all things that she had to go through, but you can't have access to unless you're here with her. So that's when I said, all right, I think, I think that's a possibility. And we can really earn our way into this incredible canon that is the color purple. Uh, uh I'm kind of blown away that you said that because in watching the film, that was one of the things that struck me so much and that I love so much about, I'll say your version, is that we got to get inside Celie's head, which we'd never seen before. So to see where that came from is, is amazing. So <laughs> I, I read that during 
your your pitch to get the film that that Oprah and Scott, the producers, were texting each other like this dude is the one. So what was this fantastic pitch that you gave that is now legendary? I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, when you when you're when you have to pitch to Steven Spielberg, Oprah Winfrey. I mean, guys, this is you know, this is this is the A team. I go. These are the goats. You know, so I was, you know, I, I kind of went back to how I've always done this, which is I sketch. You know, every idea I've ever had begins with a sketch, whether it's music, whether it's film, whether it's I always sketch something. And it's um, it's kind of an impulse for me. But I kind of also honed that in as my way of always being sure that my intentions are not misunderstood. So especially in the in the cinematic medium, I mean, if I gave out a script to everybody in, in, in the house today, we all went same script. We all went out to make the same script. We'll all come back with different movies, right? Because it's based on how we see the world, how we see ourselves. But I'm certain that if I show you a picture and say, well, we got to duplicate this picture, we'll all be, because we know where the camera is, right? And, we, and then we can all build our world around that. So every project I've done, I've always sketched. And sometimes, for instance, my first feature, The Barrel of Kojo, I sketched upwards of uh, 600 frames. Uh, actually, sketching is how I, how I got Beyonce to say yes to me uh, contributing to, to Black is King. So on this film, I sketched upwards of 1,200, 1,300 frames. And that takes months, <laughs> you know? Um, but... That is also how I was always able to communicate my intent. Because a lot of these ideas that you guys saw, very abstract. You know, if I get on a Zoom and start talking about these ideas, I'm not getting a call back. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Because they're so out there, you know, that I could only show them. And, you know, not only, you know, even after I got the job, you know, I went as far as to scan every frame, cut it, and I kind of went overboard here. So bear with me. I scanned, I cut it all into a two-hour film. I hired voice actors to read all, all the dialogue. I went on YouTube. I found sound effects. I put it all in. I even found temp score. And I feel bad for my HODs. But everybody that was hired to make this film had to sit through two hours of my pencil sketches. Yes. It was kind of, it was kind of, it was kind of out there. But I have to say this, they laughed, they cried. It's all the feelings that people feel, the finished version. But the, the great advantage for me was that if I could do this, if I could evoke these feelings with these two-dimensional sketches, then Dan Lawson's lighting and cinematography, Francine Tanchuk's costuming, Fatima Robinson's choreo, Paul Astorbury's production design. I mean, I knew we were going to hit it out the park. So those sketches are kind of how I, 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 you know, I, I pitched to get this job. I came in and said, I'm going to give Celia Imagination, and this is what it's going to look like. And that has always, you know, it's always helped me. I mean, it's not so unique. I mean, it's the end of the day, that's like the school of Hitchcock, the school of, you know, who, who, who else is like that? Uh, Ridley Scott's like that, you know, and I, and I think that it, it, you know, everyone makes films quite differently. For me, 
it really is helpful if I could show everyone the sandbox and go, guys, this is what I'm going for. And then I, after they watch it, that's it. We never talk about the storyboards ever again. They don't come on set, you know, because I want them to live in the hearts of my, my crew, right? I just want, I want you to feel like we've seen, we, we know what we're doing here, you know, because I also don't like the trying to be didactic, you know what I mean, and, and about that. I, I want people to make it their own, but I want them to know what my intent is. And I mean, this film was sprawling. It was over 40, we covered over 40 years of, of Seeley's life. Multiple set pieces, massive scale, several background. It was too many people for me to wing it. Let's put it that way. So coming in every day and knowing that everybody knew what I wanted because they had seen the movie in some form or fashion was very helpful. I mean, I want to applaud you, but also I'm like, damn, you might have ruined it for the rest of us. <laughs> the bar is now so sky high. Um, so you talked about the sketches and how that's, that's how you kind of find your way into a project. What was the first sketch for this? The first sketch was the giant gramophone. Yeah, because that was the one that, I mean, when I said it out, out by mouth, people looked at me like, yeah, Blitz is crazy. They had to see it. And not only did I sketch that, that I went as far as to getting it prevised as well, the whole sequence. Because I remember trying to, you know, my first few meetings with Fantasia, she was like, yeah, no, nah, Blitz, I'm not doing this movie. I can't do it. It was very difficult for me on Broadway. It was emotionally taxing. I've, you know, I'm a trauma survivor myself. And being on Broadway was one of the worst things for me. And I said, I, I get it, I understand it, but if you would allow me, I'd like to show you what my intent is. I plan to, you know, have this sprawling, large imagination for Seeley, and I'd like to show you. And I remember the minute I was done playing that sequence in Previs, she was like, oh, so that's what you're going to do? <laughs> okay, I'm in. <laughs> and that, you know, how Fantasia talks, that's how you're going to do so anyway, I mean, that, so that really was like, I will say that's a, that was a very important moment for me, um, knowing that this idea could be, it's very um, expansive and imaginative world could be made real, you know? And, and again, there, there, there aren't many films, certainly not with black, brown and indigenous characters that have this level of a sprawling imagination. So it was also something that I knew would be, um, would be quite a contribution. Um, well, I'd love to stay in that for a second, just talk about the world building a little bit. This is obviously it's a period piece, but it's a musical, which makes it a bit of heightened reality. How did you approach the world building and um, in terms of also, did you want to create a 360 environment for your actors? What was your thought? Yeah. Wow, that's a good one. Um, I'm a very practical, immersive filmmaker. You know, I, I've got to feel it. It's got to be in camera. There are a few things we add down the line. I had a brilliant VFX supervisor, Ariel. Um, so, you know, we, we knew we were going to add some things. But Dan Lawson and I, this is where we really connect. I remember the very first day we talked, it was like, yeah, my favorite movie is Soy Cuba. And he was like, that's my favorite movie. I go, my second favorite is Apocalypse Now. He goes, that's my second favorite. And I, I, I said, all right, you're hired. 
right there. And and the beauty is that both of those films are deeply immersive. You know, it's like yeah, it's like you're in it. You know, the camera is liberated. And that's how Dan and I really see cinema. And so it, it was a great shorthand for us. Um, so we knew that finding somebody who could give us deeply immersive sets was going to be critical. And Paul Astorberry was the man. I mean, everything was built. Even that, even that juke joint, you know, we had to drain the swamp. Yeah, it took us two months to drain that swamp, by the way. Very risky. I don't advise it. Because when it came time, we were done building. It was like, oh, now we got to fill it up. And we have two months. And we started shooting before two months. So it, it was tough. It was tough. We were hopeful. And we were lucky it all kind of filled in. And, but, you know, when you see Suge Avery on that barge, you know, it's like she had to believe that she was Suge Avery, you know, Cleopatra coming down the Nile. You know what I mean? Like that's, that was kind of the vibe that we wanted to create. And knowing that you needed physical realities to achieve that. Um, and then, I mean, as it related to, to, to music, you know, my great fortune, I've been a musician for over a decade. I've toured quite extensively with my band. And so I kind of did have a bit of a cheat code coming in, you know, when you've been night after night playing to thousands of people, you understand how musical storytelling works. And for me, the one big thing that I'd, cause I also ended up having to watch every musical ever. And guys, that's not easy. I mean, some incredible ones, but also a lot of not incredible ones. And I, I really found very quickly what was the differentiator. Those which had found organic ways into which music permeated the scene were the ones that I loved and I kind of felt, you know, I'd fell into. The ones where music just appears out the sky, I struggled with. And so that was something that we knew we were going to do from day one. Let's figure out as many organic ways in which, and diegetic ways in which the music would appear, starting from the opening shot. You know, when the horse starts to come in and you hear the horse's hoofs and a little bit of the banjo and then the girls patty caking and then before you know it, it blossoms or the guys building or putting up posters with hammers and before you know it, it builds into a into sonic cadence. Those were things that I was very, very focused on to make sure that we were never going to just stumble into music. And then the music also helped us create this, this conduit into imagination, um, starting first with, you know, um, coupling that with any time that Celie would be introduced to something novel, her mind will just expand. So a photograph, which you got to think about it in 1909, if you had a photograph taken, you had to be somebody. It wasn't something that was everywhere. So Celie's mind immediately just expands into that photograph. When she sees a gramophone, which she had never seen before, her mind expands into that gramophone. When she watches a movie, which she's never seen before, her mind expands. And, and that scene, I have to selfishly say, I did that for myself. You know what I mean? Like I, I grew, you know, in Ghana, you know, there was a coup that happened in the 80s and a lot of the movie houses shut down. And so the only way you could see a movie were the evangelical movies that came out and showed Jesus Christ movies. And by the way, the one that they showed all the time, Last Temptation of Christ, which I didn't know at the time, Martin Scorsese did. Same guy who did Taxi Driver, same guy who did Goodfellas, all this gangster shit. I was like, wow, he did a Jesus movie that I'd been seeing, you know, 
my whole life. And what will happen is the truck will go around town, announce that they're about to show the Jesus movie. We'll all, you know, again, finish our chores early, grab our stuff and go to this huge soccer park. And we will literally spread out our mats and wait. And I remember just being there watching and like being blown away. I must be eight, nine, 10, blown away by this incredible visual language that I, I, didn't, I didn't know of, I didn't understand, but it drew me in. And my mind, as a, as a filmmaker, I still, my mind still goes there and it is when it's flickering lights from a projector. So um, I was like, yeah, Celie's gonna have an imagination and it's gonna happen in a cinema house. I'm sure everybody looked at the screen and was like, what is Blitz doing sending Celie to watch a movie? And I was like, yeah, that's how her mind expands, you know? But again, she starts to see things as possible. She starts to see her feelings for sure come alive, you know, in that moment. And um, so, yeah, it, it was a lot of that building, right? Just figuring out how visually story, we were going to tell the stories and sonically and how we were going to marry them. And I think lastly, Dan and I also agreed very early that we weren't going to create a period film with the usual visual kind of texture that we're used to seeing, whether it's like faded or sepia tone or desaturated, which often tell you you're watching a period film. We were like, nope, we're not going to do that. We believe deeply that a lot of those references are based on photographs that have survived a very long time ago. And our jobs were to push into those photographs, into the worlds in which these people existed, and they lived in color, vivid color. You know, sometimes more vivid than we can even fathom. There weren't, you know, fans or AC, so they sweat. Their bodies reflected light, you know what I mean? These were things that we were very thoughtful about, a tactile way in which we could enter these worlds and be one with it. And so, yeah, those were all the elements that had to combine for us to have this moment. Well, with, with the uh, musical sequences, I mean, you touched on it perfectly. The reason why they work so well is that they don't happen in a vacuum. They're pushing story. They're pushing character. I mean, all of them were dope, but Hell No was like showstopper for me. Hell No? <laughs> um, obviously, you have an incredible choreographer uh, that you worked with on this. Can you talk about your collaboration in creating each of these? Fatima Robinson, y'all. You be knowing. <laughs> Fatima is, I mean, wow. First of all, let me say this. If I'm ever in a tense and panicked mode, Fatima is the person I want to sit next to me. First of all, this is how she talks. Blitz, you don't have to worry. It's going to work out. Like literally all the time. Like her dancers could be doing the wrong thing. She would just go up to them. That's not it. I'm like, I'm like, Fatima, how are you this cool all the time? You know, but, but you know, I, Fatima, my Fatima story goes way back. Matter of fact, she was the first person I hired. She was on my pitch deck, that infamous pitch deck. Yes. Um, she was on it because when I was in high school in Ghana, um, there's a video out by the late, great Aaliyah. Um, Are You That Somebody? And 
I remember we had some kind of like comp- com- competitive entertainment night. And unbeknownst to all these um, girl groups in my grade, they had all picked Aliyah Zayi, that's somebody, to learn the choreo and to perform. And mind you guys, this is pre-YouTube. So somebody had to have a VHS tape, okay? This, this is not easy work. They had to play, pause, rewind, learn one move, go back, learn the next move. I mean, that's how incredible her work was and had traveled. And I remember watching girl group after girl group after girl group coming up and performing Aliyah Zayi somebody mm-hmm. and saying to myself, whoever did that, I would love to work with them in the future. And so when I got this job, I was like, guys, first person, and she's on my deck, so you can't refuse her, is Fatima Robinson. And, and what I love with what she did was we talked a lot. We talked a lot about, you know, just, you know, this brilliant arc of African-American movement and its genius and what stayed and what's left and what was what carried on. And that's all we kept talking about. What are the things that we could trace back? Dances that are done today that we could trace back. And she will like, you know, send me like videos with her skeleton crew. And I mean, she would even like suggest, you know, shots. Be like, Blitz, I think, you know, when they do this, we should do that. The camera should do that. I mean, it was incredible. and. The other thing I should also mention is Fatima and Dan Lawson's relationship in this film is one that, I mean, I'm so grateful for because how the camera moves is very complementary to how Fatima's, you know, choreo worked. And so there was constant conversation there, but it didn't stop there. I would also bring Fatima in because Truly, I think one of the other things that musicals suffer quite a bit is how musical numbers are treated and then how dialogue and narrative work is treated. So often it's like you're watching two different movies. It's like, oh, here's this, you know, the camera's flying all over the place. And then here we go, bump, 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 bump. You know, and, and I, you know, I was just like, how can we make this more integrated? So that would mean that the camera would be, have to be liberated in all ways. So, I mean, you guys probably saw shots where it's like we fly all the way up to find these girls up in the window. It's like that's shots like that are often reserved for like big dance moves when the camera has to swing. Man, we were doing it however we wanted. You know, like we follow a horse like this and then before you know it, we're like that. We're finding the girls in the tree. We were just doing all of that because I knew that when it all cuts together, it all has to feel like one ballet. And that's why I think Fatima was just incredibly valuable. All right, the five-minute warning. Should oh, have no, we're just questions. getting started. <laughs> um, so I do want to talk about casting because oh. this cast, um, as I was saying to you backstage, was so beautiful. Is if you just watch their journey, they all organically dig each other. They love you. They respect you. Um, and that showed up on screen to you were also dealing with, you're doing a film, you're doing a musical, so you have to find that balance between actors and singers. Yeah. And what, what was the focus for you um, in terms of that? And then also, how did you navigate working with 
absolute vets and Broadway folk and film folk and first timers. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a big one. I mean, I always say like, I don't cast people. Like I cast aura, you know, I've always, I feel like, like how would Coleman Domingo's aura, you know, live with Fantasia's aura? You know, like, and it's kind of intangible and sounds quite esoteric, but like when you see it on screen, you just go, yeah, those people work and you don't quite know why. And that was like my biggest focus was to find energies that matched. And, um, but I also really value harmony. You know, I think that the work we do is deeply challenging and doesn't need to be more challenging by having people come in. I, and everybody knows, I, I had what they called the no asshole policy. And I didn't care how brilliant you were, you're not gonna work on my film. Because harmony gets us much further than individual brilliance. Amen. Somebody in the church felt that? Yeah. Boom. So, and, I, and I really encourage that because I also really value rewarding good behavior, right? People, are, people who work hard and are kind and are thoughtful about the rest of their, 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 their teammates, I value that. And so I was looking for people who also revered this title as much as I did. You know, we all had to come in and submit to The Color Purple, Alice Walker's brilliant work, which we're all in service of at the end of the day. Um, as far as like figuring out, you know, this, sprawling cast and the myriads of, of experience levels. Yes, I had the legendary Lou Gossett Jr., okay, master of craft. And I can say it in this room because y'all just saw it, and I hope you're not going to tell nobody, but the legendary Whoopi Goldberg, I mean, come on, come on, you know. But then I also had, like, fresh, like, never done this, you know, Felicia Imposse, who plays young C, who's brilliant. I also had her, John Batiste. I mean, I had people who were like, but what I loved was that there were no small parts. Everybody came up, showed up as their best self, took it infinitely serious. You know, I also, like, I'm the kind of director that's like, I believe the casting period is the directing period. Like, if you cast right, your job is to trust them, right? And I, I, I really allow my cast the space to work it out and figure it out. You know, at the end of the day, we're conductors, you know what I mean, of a massive orchestra. None of us can purport to know anybody's instrument better than they do, not even close. Your job is to keep time. You know, when you need it to get big, you do this. When you need it to come down, you do that. But it's really on them who've mastered their craft, and but also mastered the character. Because that's the other thing. It's like, that's all they think about. Matter of fact, I realize they don't even read other people's parts. They just highlight their shit. And they just go, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. Good night. You know? And I realize that, oh, you've got to trust them. You've got to give them all the space to live. And your job, again, is to figure out this harmony. But what I do love, and I have to say this, is how much everybody leaned on each other. There was a real, true, I mean, what you're seeing on our press tour um, is what it was like on set. Coleman would show up early to help the young, you know, our younger cast members. And it wasn't like I'm helping you with your lines. It was like, I just want you to know I'm here for you, you know. And a lot of our rehearsals were also, you know, 
they were just like almost like therapy sessions. Like we'll read the script, you know, and go, okay, that's that's the intention here. Then we'll we'll start talking about, okay, what does the scene mean? Then before we know it, we're talking about, yeah, and I know somebody just like Mister. Matter of fact, that's my uncle. Somebody would be like, yeah, that's my auntie. She survived this. And before we know it, we're talking about these things in so much more expansive a way. So when we're on set, we're drawing from these collective experiences. And I think that's kind of what you, you're witnessing. It's just the levels of harmony that existed before the camera was turned on and after the camera's turned off. Um, well, Blitz, thank you. Oh, it's so a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So thank you all for being here. It's such an honor. Such an honor. Thank you. And thank you, Gina. Come thank on. You. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.